Um, so tonight we'll be in, jo- in Joshua chapter 10. And uh, this is one of those chapters in the Bible that is a favorite uh, target, I think, if you are someone looking for reasons to doubt, looking for reasons to question the Bible, or even question uh, the goodness of God or the biblical narrative. Uh, and I think it's also a question that we believers, all, uh, or a text we believers also will kind of wrestle with. So we'll get there in a minute. But I want to start out with a story uh, that I know I've told before, but I'll tell it again because it makes a good point to kind of set things up for, for tonight. Uh, one day an old man was walking along a dirt road way out in the country with his mule and his dog. And all of a sudden, around the corner, this city slicker driving way too fast slid around the corner in his sports car and hit this guy, knocking him, his dog, and his mule into the ditch. Well, the old man decided to sue for damages, so he took this person to court, and uh, while the old man was on the witness stand, the counsel for uh, the driver... Uh, was examining him with a, with a simple question. He said, I want you to answer yes or no to this question. Did you or did you not, at the time of the accident, say that you were quote-unquote perfectly fine? In other words, why are you suing for damages when you're saying everything is perfectly fine? And the man said, well, me and my dog and my mule were walking along the road, and the counsel for the defense said, whoa, 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 no, no, no. I said yes or no. I want a yes or no answer here. Did you say you were perfectly fine at the time of the accident? Well, me and my dog and my mule, we were walking down the road, and the defense attorney appealed right to the judge and said, your honor, the man is not answering my question. Would you please insist that he answer the question? The judge said, well, obviously... This fellow wants to tell us something, so I'm going to let him speak. So the man continued, he said, Well, me and my mule and my dog, we were walking along the road, and this car came around the corner speeding really fast, knocked us into the ditch. The driver stopped, got out of his car, saw that my dog was badly injured, went back to his truck, came out with a handgun, and shot my dog in the head. He saw that my mule had broken his leg, so he shot my mule in the head. And then he said, how are you? And I said, perfectly fine, right? (laughs) There's more to the story. And so the moral of that little story is simply this. Make sure you got the whole story, not just part of it, before reaching conclusions, right? Make sure you're looking at the story as a whole before you pick things out and get the wrong idea or jump to conclusions. And perhaps when it comes to the Bible, um, nowhere is this more important than in some of the texts we have been reading over the past few weeks in the book of Joshua. Uh, We hit one a few weeks ago, which was Joshua and the people of Israel taking the city of Jericho And once God brings those walls down, they put it to the sword, just as God asked them to do, commanded them to do. And we've got several similar accounts tonight uh, that are also kind of challenging, kind of disturbing. And if not considered in the bigger text of who is God and what is God up to, these can be very misleading 
biblical texts. All right? Uh, so one of the big objections, and I think this has gotten more popular recently, one of the big objections raised to the Bible, uh, raised by atheists, is the Bible sanctions genocide. Mic drop. I mean, that, they figure if they got you on that, I mean, the Bible sanctions genocide. And the book of Joshua is the place for proof texts when it comes to making their point. So here we go, Joshua chapter 10. Uh, we're going to read verse 28 through the end of the chapter. It'll go pretty quickly, except there's some big names in here that are kind of hard to pronounce. That day Joshua took Makeda. He put the city and its king to the sword and totally destroyed everyone in it. He left no survivors. And he did to the king of Makeda as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him moved on from Makeda to Libna and attacked it. The Lord also gave that city and its king into Israel's hand. The city and everyone in it Joshua put to the sword. He left no survivors there. And he did to the king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him. This gets very repetitive, okay? It's just story after story. It's basically the same. But they moved up from Libna to Lachish. He took positions against it and attacked it. The Lord handed Lachish over to Israel, and Joshua took it on the second day. The city and everyone in it he put to the sword, just as he had done to Libna. Meanwhile, Horam, king of Gezer, had come up to help Lachish, but Joshua defeated him and his army until no survivors were left. Then Joshua and all Israel with him moved up on from Lachish to Eglon. They took positions against it and attacked it. They captured it the same day and put it to the sword and totally destroyed everyone in it, just as they had done to Lachish. Verse 36. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron and attacked it. They took the city and put it to the sword, together with its king, its villages, and everyone in it. They left no survivors, just as at Eglon, they totally destroyed it and everyone in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned around and attacked Debir. They took the city, its king, and its villages, and put them to the sword. Everyone in it, they totally destroyed and left no survivors. They did to Debir and its king, as they had done to Libna and its king, and to Hebron. So Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, and the mountain slopes, together with all their kings. He left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed, important here, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Joshua subdued them from Kadesh Barnea to Gaza and from the whole region of Goshen to Gibeon. All those kings and their lands Joshua conquered in one campaign because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. Obviously, not a feel-good text from the Bible. Uh, people are not selecting this one and over, you know, 1 Corinthians 13 to be read at their wedding. Uh, and it's not one that you're typically going to go to just for meditation to get your day started off uh, right with some good inspiration. Frankly, it's troubling. It just is. It's a troubling text. Uh, there is killing. There is a lot of killing in Joshua chapter 10. And it is clearly God-sanctioned killing. 
God commanded Joshua, and God was with Israel. God fought for Israel, as we saw at the end of the chapter. Um, So for atheists, this is kind of a big deal, and I do believe that honest truth seekers uh, who are believers will wrestle as well with this. Um, We don't ignore this. We don't pass over these kinds of questions. Uh, If we're going to have a robust, strong faith, we need to seriously consider uh, and think about the implications of texts like this. Uh, In a word, like I said, the objection here is genocide. That's the word. And I think it's fair to say, I don't think I'm going to get a fight on this, genocide is wrong. Genocide is always wrong. Genocide is evil. Richard Dawkins, famous uh, famous atheist uh, who passed away recently, uh, he wrote in The God Delusion uh, about stories like this one we just read from the Old Testament. Here's, Here's his quote from The God Delusion. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously benevolent, uh, malevolent <laughs> bully. A lot of syllables there. So, less of a sermon tonight, more of just a consideration, a study of this text and this question. But as I said with that story at the beginning about the old farmer, his mule, and his dog, very important when you get into considering a story like that and the morality of the story, if you're going to challenge the morality of the story, you have an obligation to consider the story, the whole story, not simply pieces of the story. And obviously, we're dealing with a lot of people that come to this text, they believe the Bible is fiction, as we saw in the Dawkins quote. God is a fictional character in a fictional book. But even if you're going to consider a fictional book, or The Last Jedi, or Harry Potter, or whatever, uh, if you're going to consider moral objections to it, you need to look at the whole story. Um, So, I say this because typically Dawkins and other detractors of the Bible, they don't do this when it comes to the Bible. They zero in on texts like this and cloud out the rest of the narrative. Uh, And yeah, if you're going to pick on a text, Joshua 10 is a good place to start. Uh, But you can't ignore the other parts of the narrative, like... Uh, They don't believe that God created the world, but that's part of the narrative. That's part of the Bible narrative. That's part of the story. Uh, They don't accept miracles, uh, like the plagues against Egypt, or the opening of the Red Sea, or the miraculous collapse of the walls of Jericho, or the miracles of Jesus. Again, I'm not saying you have to believe that all of those miracles happened. Um, Certainly you're free to believe or disbelieve. It's just that if you're going to make moral judgments about the story, about the Bible, about that narrative, then you need to respect all of it, all the parts of the Bible. And the rest of the narrative has God giving life to human beings 
in the beginning pages of the Bible. It has God affirming the sacredness of life, forbidding murder against any person. Uh, It has God sending his son as a redeemer to come and save sinners. It has God teaching about forgiveness and even sacrificing himself uh, for the good of the people he created. And it has God, in the end of the Bible, making all things right at the end of time. That's all part of the narrative. Whether you consider it to be true or fictional, that's all part of the narrative. And you've also got to consider life after death. Pretty big part of the narrative. Now, uh, for atheists, you're going to, an atheist and a Christian are going to have totally different world views, uh, world views in general. Like, uh, if you don't believe in God, if you don't believe in the story of the Bible, you likely don't believe there is life after death. This is all you've got. This life is everything. There is nothing else. That is not the biblical worldview. That's not the worldview that Joshua and the people of the Bible and we are operating within. Uh, We believe this life is a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow, that's what Jesus taught. Not that it's inconsequential, but this is certainly not all there is. And I would say thank God for that. Uh, We also believe that God, our God, or the God of the Bible, this is what's taught in that book. He is all wise. He is all knowing. He certainly has access to information that people do not have access to. He can do calculations uh, given his expansive knowledge uh, about what brings about the most justice, what brings about the most good, how the most people can be blessed. Uh, He's able to do things that we're not able to do in those respects. So again, I'm okay uh, with people raising objections to places like Joshua 10 as long as you also consider the whole narrative, the whole story, just as you would if you were judging any other story or any other movie, right? And part of the narrative involving these specific lands, okay, you you probably notice these are very specific groups that are being targeted, if you will, in Joshua chapter 10, and the narrative with these specific groups begins centuries earlier, way before you get to Joshua chapter 10 and the conquest that's occurring as we walk through Joshua. Like in Leviticus 18, the Israelites, well before they ever arrive in the promised land, they are warned about the peoples who live in that land. Uh, This land that they are eventually going to conquer. They are told this land is occupied by rampant child sacrifice by bestiality, by incest, by other absolutely wicked stuff going on, unlike we would see really in any society. Maybe ISIS would get closest to it, but I don't even think they hold a candle to what was going on in the ancient Near East uh, at this time. Now, Israel is warned that they, when they take the land, they are not to partake in any of that, and that because of this evil, this is Leviticus 18.25, because of this evil, the land of the Canaanites is going to quote-unquote vomit them out, right? The land is going to expunge itself of this evil, is going to cast these people out. So, to be clear, this isn't genocide. Uh, It's not ethnic cleansing. It's not race-based warfare or race-based killing. Uh, This conquest of Canaan in the narrative is all about good versus evil. It's all about clearing away evil. And for centuries, 
as part of the biblical narrative, we have to remember God has been patient. For centuries, God has known about this wickedness, but God has withheld judgment. He has allowed those people to have time to change their ways. Genesis, way back in the beginning, chapters of the Bible, Genesis 15, verse 16, says that the full measure of the sin of the Amorites, that's the, the group of peoples here, in the the promised land, uh, that the full measure of the sin of the Amorites has not occurred, and so God is waiting. God is withholding judgment. So there has been patience, centuries and centuries of patience before Joshua chapter 10 and the final end of these ancient civilizations. So we've got groups in the land. I mean, just to be clear, Uh, We've got groups in the land that prize child sacrifice, uh, that have made homosexuality, incest, temple prostitution pillars of their religious practice. Now, again, we're not just simply talking about they did some of this stuff on the side or they kind of, you know, committed these crimes or what. No, this was the spiritual, the highest ideals of their cultures. The worship of their cultures were typified by putting a child in the, in the molten hot hands of Molech, uh, a bronze statue that they would heat up with fire so those hands are radiating heat. They would put a, a child in it, the skin of the child would burn out, and the child would drop into the fire. That's what they did uh, for worship, all right? These are the kind of people that we're dealing with. Um, so you've got this going on, and, and beyond that, we can't forget the bigger, bigger narrative that these people's They have had opportunities over the centuries to repent, including very recently quite specific opportunities. We've already seen the living, breathing example of Rahab, who was one of these peoples, but who chose to switch sides, who chose to acknowledge that the God of Israel was the true God, and other peoples could have either gotten out of the way of Joshua and the armies of Israel, or they could have turned to God and repented. We see an example of this later in Israel's history with the Jebusites. Uh, The Jebusites were the residents of Jerusalem before David conquered Jerusalem. And when David finally makes his move on this future capital of Israel, on Jerusalem, the Jebusites want to join the Israelites, and they are allowed to be folded in to God's holy community. So we have examples of people's turning to God, of repenting in the Old Testament. But yes, there was something so abominable, something so horrific about these cultures that Yahweh had finally and ultimately lost patience with these cultures and consigned them to the dustbins of history, consigned them to be erased once and for all. So back to Richard Dawkins, another quote from Dawkins. The Bible story of Joshua's destruction of Jericho and the invasion of the promised land in general, listen closely, this is the objection that's raised here, it is morally indistinguishable from Hitler's invasion of Poland or Saddam Hussein's massacres of the Kurds. Morally indistinguishable. So clearly... Dawkins and a lot of others, they attack the narrative as being immoral. This is a wicked, evil narrative. That's the judgment. But they are willfully blind to the story as a whole. Right? Uh, comparing Joshua with Hitler, 
Or Saddam Hussein, I mean, really? Really? Um, in the Bible, God had spoken, had personally spoken to Joshua. That's part of the narrative. You're, if you're going to judge the narrative, well, God had, had personally spoken to him. God had a proven track record of goodness. He gave the law uh, about doing good and about protecting people and property. Uh, God has wrought miracles that Joshua has per- personally been on the front row and witnessed. He knows God is real and he has witnessed God doing miracles. And the enemy peoples are not being judged because of their race or because of ethnic considerations. That's not part of the biblical narrative. They're being judged for their evil deeds. So, lots of differences. And you can't judge fairly Joshua 10 without taking the protagonist taking the central character of Scripture seriously, God. I mean, if you're going to judge a story, then you better judge the central figure of the story. Obviously, in the Bible, that's God. And I think it's worth pointing out that in the biblical narrative, not only are these nations warned, but Israel, or punished, but Israel is warned. Right? It's not like, Israel, you're the good guys. You're the, what, whatever, ethnically pure. Uh, you're wearing the white hat, so no matter what happens, you guys are good. No. In the biblical narrative, Israel is repeatedly warned, and if you read the narrative, they are at times judged themselves for their wickedness as well. In fact, as someone noted, it's interesting in the Bible, the national literature of Israel, that that book gives us so many indicting stories about the moral character of Israel itself, isn't it? I mean, it talks honestly about all people. And in the story of Scripture, God is presented, the central character is presented as all-knowing, all-wise, so he simply can perform calculations that no one else can or can even imagine that they might be able to perform. Like I remember, I was thinking this week, Thinking of the whole story, I, I was thinking this week about that, that iconic photo of Michael Jackson, right, suspending that baby off that hotel balcony. I think it was in Berlin years ago. And uh, I was thinking about how everyone was outraged by I was outraged by that. And everyone agreed that was bad. That was wrong. That was morally wrong to do that, put that child in danger. And yet... As a father, for, for several years when my kids were little, I used to throw my kids up in the air constantly and swing them around, and they loved it. But that wasn't wrong because I loved them, and I knew I was going to catch them. No drops, no drops, okay? Uh, the God of the Bible, he knows what's going to happen. He knows that what he is doing is for the best, Of course, God isn't going to, thankfully, God is not going to ask you to repeat what Joshua did. And that's one of the objections that raised is, well, all these terrorists and people doing evil in the name of religion, they can just say, God told me to do it. But we know God is not going to do that because we know in the narrative God spoke directly to Joshua. Other people heard the voice of God, knew this was from God, witnessed the miracles to confirm that voice of God. Um, And like the hailstones that we saw come Coming from heaven last week, God was personally, actually God was personally doing most of the fighting in the book 
of Joshua. We're told the hailstones did more damage than anything the armies of Israel did. So God was personally doing a lot of the fighting. So it wasn't like guesswork for Joshua. Is God really on our side or not? No, they could see evidence of it in each battle. So in the bigger story of Scripture, all of these smaller moments, you add them together, you get the bigger narrative. And we talked about this last week. The bigger narrative points to Jesus. The Old Testament points forward to Jesus. The Gospels point directly at Jesus. The epistles explain Jesus. And the, the end book, Revelation, points to the consummation of all things in Jesus at the end of time. And he is the culmination of the story. As the Bible itself says, he is the Alpha and the Omega. That's the A to Z in the Greek alphabet. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the end-all, be-all of Scripture. And He has called us to be a people of peace. He has called us to be a people of mercy. And He has called us to exemplify the core, loving, and merciful nature of God. That's our calling. And I, for one, am thankful that Joshua did his job so we don't have to do stuff like that. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that Joshua was faithful, and I'm thankful that in the Bible, we get to see the whole story. We get more than bits and pieces. And I'm thankful that the Bible is honest, that it doesn't do a historical cover-up, that it doesn't paint Israel or God's people as being perfect, but tells us all about the ups and downs of, of all of God's people. Now, we understand that since God in the flesh, Jesus, has come into our world, he is the ultimate revelation of who God is, of what God wants from us. So in Jesus, we get our mission from God, and it is not a mission of military conquest. Just as the Lord fought for us, the Lord is with us in our beautiful mission of reconciliation. And Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll pick up in, in verse 16. And this is where we're going to finish tonight. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 21. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling himself to the world in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray together. Holy and just Father, we come before your throne tonight with glad hearts that we have been given a mission so beautiful, so redemptive. Father, honestly, there are parts of this biblical narrative that, that trouble us, that disturb us, 
that make us scratch our heads, that make us wonder. Father, we ultimately believe and trust in you. We've seen your goodness. We've seen your mercy. And we believe that you being in control is the best thing. Father, I pray for the hearts of those that have not come to faith. I pray that you will allow them to see the big story, the whole story, not just a few chapters tucked or verses tucked away in the Old Testament, but to experience the whole redemptive story of a God who loves people, who understands the destructive power and diminishing power of evil in the lives of people. A God who understands that evil must be dealt with. And we are thankful that ultimately and finally on the cross, you had the last word. You gave yourself to set us free from the powers of hell, to wash our sins away, and to put us on mission. May we boldly and lovingly be your ambassadors as though you're making your appeal through us to our neighborhoods, to our coworkers, to our families, to the city of Dallas, and to the world. Father, we're thankful for people of faith like Joshua who simply did what you commanded them to do, who honored you, and who set the stage for the future coming of the Messiah, the hope of mankind. We praise you, we worship you, we put our trust in you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's be standing, let's worship together.